We're going to be in 2 Corinthians 7 in just a moment. 2 Corinthians 7. There's an episode of Andy Griffith in which uh, Opie encounters a bully. And every day as Opie makes his way to school, the bully stops him and takes his nickel that was meant for milk and says if he doesn't give him that nickel, he's going to give him a knuckle sandwich instead. And so Opie asks Andy for an extra nickel. And unbeknownst to Andy, it's an extra nickel. And then the next day, he asks Barney for a nickel. And they begin to figure out something's going on. And Barney does some reconnaissance work, that famous scene where he, he cuts out the center of a newspaper and he's holding it. And uh, he's watching and he sees what's happening with Opie. And he goes back and tells Andy. And Andy, in his sneaky way, uh, tries to encourage Opie without telling him he knows what's going on. You got to stand up to the bully. And the day comes when Opie's going to stand up to the bully. And there's a scene that takes place in the sheriff's office where Andy's standing there looking out the blinds and he's, he's tapping the blinds with a pencil very annoyingly to Barney. And Barney takes the pencil away from him. And then Barney starts tapping the pencil on the desk. And then Barney says, well, I, I think I'm going to go check on something. And Andy says, no, you're not going anywhere. He tries to leave a couple of times. But they're in a moment of difficulty they're waiting, waiting to see what's going to happen with Opie and the bully. Waiting can be hard. Maybe you've had that moment of waiting when you sent your kid out on a solo drive for the first time to the store, and you're sitting there looking out the window, maybe tapping something. How's it going to go? First date, how's it going to go? What's going to happen? Are they going to make it back okay? Okay waiting for a doctor to come into the room to tell you how the surgery went. Waiting to hear from the potential employer, whether you got the job or they, they gave it to somebody else. Waiting can be a miserable place. And today, Paul is in a place of waiting. And he's quite miserable. He's quite un-Paul-like. If we were to think of Paul, the fearless He's pretty miserable in his particular position. And before we get to that and where he's presently at, we do need to, to do a quick review of where he's been, his history with Corinth. It's been a while since we've jumped back into this line. And so Paul had helped form this church in Corinth. He stayed there for 18 months before he would leave and go to Ephesus. It's a long time when you consider how, he how long he stayed at most of the other churches. Well, he wrote them a letter to answer some questions and concerns that they had while he was there in Ephesus. We call that letter A. It's not 1 Corinthians. It's a letter that was written before 1 Corinthians, and so we'll call it letter A. Well, they ignored that letter. They ignored his answers and suggestions, and things got worse for the Corinthians. And so Paul writes another letter, what we know as 1 Corinthians, or you could say Corinthians B. Timothy goes to check on the church after they've received... Paul's letter of 1 Corinthians and things are not good. And so Paul makes his own emergency, what he calls painful visit to them, where he rebukes them, he instructs them, he tries to encourage them to do what's right and make right choices. Still, things do not improve. And so instead of actually returning as he told them he would to see how things are going, he decides to write another letter to them, what he calls a, a sorrowful letter. We would call this 
Corinthians C. It's not 2 Corinthians. And he sends it with Titus. After writing the letter, Paul and his companions work their way through Asia where ministry is not only difficult, but it's been dangerous for them. Paul even writes that we feared for our lives at certain points as we made our way through the churches in Asia. He stops in, in Troas, which is there in the northern part of Asia. And he's hoping Titus will be there. They must have had some sort of plan that if, if you're done there, if you finish in Corinth, get to Troas, we'll meet at Troas. And, but there's no Titus. He's longing to hear what's happened with the Corinthians, what's happening with Titus. And so, since he's not there, they travel on to Macedonia. This is where Philippi is. Thessalonica. We don't know exactly where he's posted at, but Paul writes this about his experience in Troas. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Here's what he says about their time in Troas where he was waiting. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. And so I took leave of them and I went on to Macedonia. Now before we jump on back over to chapter 7, I want you to see what happens next in verse 14. He says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in a triumphal procession, and through us, spreads the fragrance of knowledge of him everywhere. Paul veers off here. And he starts talking about the triumphal procession of Christ. And from there, he's kind of off to the races. He talks about the new covenant. He talks about the light of the gospel. He talks about the jars of clay in which we live, our heavenly dwelling which we long for. He talks about the ministry of reconciliation and being ambassadors together. All of these things that we've spent the last several months walking through. He talks about those things. Well, all of that incredible truth from verse 14 in chapter 2 all the way to where we are today is a giant rabbit trail inspired by the Holy Spirit for sure, but it's a giant trail that he veers off and begins to talk about these particular things. And today in chapter 7 and verse 5, he jumps back on the main line and he picks up the conversation that he left off in verse 13. I know a lot of you don't appreciate that and you think you're just such a nerd. I love this stuff. I love to see how the scriptures flow together. And so he stops talking about Titus in verse 13 and he starts talking about him again in chapter 7 and verse 5. Notice what he writes. For even when we came into Macedonia, like no rabbit trail ever happened, right? Every good preacher. Our bodies, they had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn. We were fighting without, we had fear within, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he, uh, with the comfort with which he was comforted by you, Corinthians, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it. For I see that my letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice. 
Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a, a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief, well, it produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in this matter. And so, although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we have said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. And I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Over the next three weeks, we're going to work our way through these verses. Today, we're going to focus on verses 5 through 9 together. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing. Father, we come before you thankful for your word. Thankful that there is, there is truth here that encourages us in our times of waiting. There's comfort in knowing that Paul waited and Paul knows fighting without and fear within. And so God, I pray that you would comfort grieving hearts today. Lord, that you would encourage us and embolden us to be zealous for your work, even in the difficult times. Thank you for your truth. Help us now as we unpack it together. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin with the affliction of Paul and company. If we go back to chapter 1 and 2 and erase everything that we've talked about from that particular point in our minds, he, he begins his letter by talking about this God of comfort, this God who comforts us. In chapter 1 and verse 8, he wrote this, that they were burdened beyond strength, that they were despairing even for life itself. Even adding, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. All of this, Paul says, we're experiencing because of the afflictions that we endured as we made our way through Asia to get here to Macedonia. He picks up on that line of thinking in chapter 7 and verse 5 again, for even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. He says, we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without, fear within. There, Paul and, and his companions, their experiences had left them physically, emotionally, and spiritually just depleted. That's how they arrived in Macedonia. But what are the fightings without? In chapter 1 where he talks about the dangers and now in chapter 7 where he talks about the dangers, he doesn't really define the fighting that they were enduring. But we can take a couple of guesses at it. I think that the major thing uh, that they're fighting are the false teachers. 
As they go through these churches, false teachers have, have embedded themselves in each of these churches and they're teaching false things and, and, and they're not just, just teaching them and drawing people away, but they're threatening Paul. We already know that Paul has endured many things at the hands of the Jews and, and those who would come into these particular churches and infiltrate. And so there were obviously some physical dangers that they faced as they made their way working through these churches. These false teachers were trying to do harm to them trying to do harm to the people that Paul loved in each of these churches. And guess what? False teachers are still very prevalent today. Nothing has changed. They still infiltrate churches. They, they still lead people away from the truth of the gospel, from the truth of God's word. And they still want to do harm to the people that I love and the people that you love. Well, that's the fighting without, but what about the fear within? This is what Paul confesses to. What, what would he fear? And, and I find this so refreshing, to be honest with you, because when I think of Paul, I think of fearless. I think of a man who, who just seemed to defy all the odds. And no matter what he faced, it just didn't matter. He, he was just going to do it because it was obedience to the Lord. But he confesses here to being filled with fear. And I find comfort in that because I'm often filled with fear. And hopefully you can find comfort because I know you're often filled with fear. The Apostle Paul understands what it is to fear, but what does he have to fear? I think one element of what he fears here is Titus. What's become of him? We'll get to that in a moment. But I think for Paul, in, in chapter 11 and verse 28, he, he's detailing his suffering. He writes this. He says, The daily pressure on me, on my, uh, on, of my anxiety, let me read that again, the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul's just gone through these churches. He's seen what the false teachers are doing. Paul carries on his shoulders a constant care, constant concern for the churches. We know this when we read those letters that he writes to the churches because how does he open? I pray for you daily. I pray for you all the time. Why? Because they're on his heart. They're on his mind. He has a concern for these churches scattered across Asia and Macedonia. And I know something of this pressure. Being a pastor. One of the books that I read, one of the commentaries, Guthrie, he writes this. He says, Christian ministers, we not only carry the weight of our own spiritual struggles and failures, but also work with spiritually dysfunctional people who at times kick against us as we try to lead them towards growth. Now, I didn't call you spiritually dysfunctional. Guthrie did. I just won't disagree with him. <laughs> We're spiritually dysfunctional. You and I both. And the care of souls is a burden that is placed on pastors and elders and teachers. And it's a burden that weighs heavy on pastors, elders, and teachers. When you grieve, believe me, I grieve. When your marriage is struggling, I'm in the struggle with you. When your kids stray from the Lord, it's as if my own kids are straying from the Lord. When you suffer, I suffer. And that's not just because it's, it's a job. It's because it's a calling. 
It's what Christ has put and positioned pastors to do and to be. To watch for the souls, to care for the souls of people. And it involves all of life. And I'm just a pastor of one church. Paul had on him the burden and the weight of probably 50 or 60 times that. As he considered all of the churches that he had interacted with across Asia Minor in his life. But in the moment, the heaviest burden that he bears, that the church that weighs the most on him is Corinth. He fearfully waits for news from Titus about how they received that letter that he wrote, that, that painful letter that he wrote. Have you ever sent an email or maybe a text and it required a response? And maybe it was a hard email to send. Maybe you were confronting somebody about something or a text and, and you just sat there anxiously waiting and wondering, when, when are they going to respond back? Maybe you're waiting for the dot, dot, dot to show up and think maybe, maybe they're going to respond now. And you, you just stand there, you look at your phone, you stare at it. Or if it was an email, you just keep hitting refresh. You think, when are they going to respond? Or you go to your spam folder and look, make sure the response didn't go to spam or something like that. Just anxiously waiting. That's where Paul is. Paul is anxiously, fearfully waiting for a response from Titus, from the Corinthians. And verse 5 ends with the gloom of the unknown, but verse 6 begins with these glorious two words. But God. But God. There's comfort that comes from God. This too harkens back to chapter 1 where Paul wrote, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. The God of all comfort. How did God comfort Paul? He mentions two ways here. First, he was comforted by the coming of Titus in verse 6. Titus is alive. Titus isn't dead. They didn't kill him. He's here and he's in front of me. Paul had feared no doubt for the life of his friend. If he had trouble getting from Ephesus to Macedonia, no doubt Titus could have run into trouble getting from Corinth back to Macedonia as well. Paul and his companions had just escaped with their own lives and the presence of Titus filled Paul with comfort. Listen, I've, I've had the privilege of being in the airport when soldiers return home weary weary from being away from their families weary from the things that they've experienced George is here today I've been there a couple times for, for his returns home and when they when they see their, their family when their family sees them there's a joy in that moment that overcomes I've been in the waiting rooms of hospitals I've been in funeral homes where the grief is thick. But a family member or a friend will come in the room and what happens? There's, a, there's just a twinkle in the eye in that moment. That's what's going on here. His dear friend Titus is alive. His dear friend Titus is present with him in the room. They're comforted in this thing. Friendship is a beautiful gift from God. Friendship is a gift that comes with the benefit of comfort when we're around those dear friends. 
Kent Hughes recounts this story in his commentary. He writes this, there's a beautiful passage from a now forgotten old novel in which the care of God flows through a consecrated personality named Elisa. She's a poor woman and had just lost her son and was in the depths of grief and her godly friend Anna joined her. And they knelt in prayer by the bedside and they, they prayed and Anna suggested that Elisa ask God to lay his hand on her head. When Elisa made the request, Anna softly laid her hand on Elisa's head. He's done it! Glory to God, cried Elisa. Her friend coaxed her to tell about it and Elisa replied, there was a wonderful feeling that went down through me and the hand was just like yours. The hand was mine replied Anna gently. But it was God's hand too. And so it was with the coming of Titus. For in the coming of Titus, God came to comfort Paul as well. But it wasn't just the presence of Titus that comforted Paul. He was comforted by his conversation with Titus. His conversation about the Corinthians. You see, Titus had been comforted because the Corinthians had received. They had accepted this, this painful letter that Paul had written to them. And so Paul writes uh, that Titus told us of your longing. Titus told us of your mourning. Titus told us of your zeal for me so that I rejoice still the more. It was joyous enough to see Titus, but then when he shared how you received the letter, he was overjoyed. The Corinthians... Longing was in this way. They had a deep desire for Paul. What does that mean? It means they wanted to be reconciled to Paul. This is what Paul's been praying for. This is why Paul wrote. And so Paul is overcome that it's worked. God has answered the prayers. They were mourning over their sin. They had grasped the wrong that they had done against Paul. They had grasped their, their wrong that they had committed against Christ in following the false teachers. And they're mournful over their sin. Finally, Paul's comforted because not only did they long for Paul, were they mournful, but he says, you're zealous. You're zealous for me. In the same way that I'm zealous for you, we can be reconciled. There's longing. They want to work. They want to restore what sin is broken in the relationships. More importantly, and most importantly, in the relationship with Jesus. And Paul is overcome with joy. Even more reason to rejoice. Friends, once again. And isn't it true, there is great joy in reconciliation. It's a beautiful thing. When God brings broken people together once again. It's a joyous thing. Beginning in verse 8, Paul comments on his actions that led to their present restoration. I'm going to briefly introduce this. We're going to spend the majority of our time next Sunday working through some of these verses. But by sending this, this painful letter with Titus, Paul had caused them grief. No doubt it was hard to read the things that Paul had written. They were like daggers. They were knives to their soul. But now seeing the outcome, Paul says, I, I, don't, I don't regret sending it. Though he's pretty honest here and he says, 
though I did regret sending it. <laughs> During the waiting, while I was trying to figure out, did it work? Was it the right thing to do? He did have seasons of regret. Parents don't like to discipline their kids. It's never a pleasant thing. To spank a child, limiting them, taking things away from them. But why do we do this? So that it might cause grief in them. Grief over what they've done. Grief over their sin, the choices that they've made. But we don't just want any kind of grief. We want the right kind of grief. We want a grief that, according to Paul here, a grief that leads them to repentance. Grieving a child is not the goal. Helping a child repent is the goal. Grieving us is never God's goal. Helping us repent is always his goal. And so we want to see that kind of repentance. As it says in verse 9, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved. I'm not happy about the grief. I'm not happy about the way it made you feel. But because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. And what does he mean by that last phrase? You suffered no loss through us. The last part means that significant harm was avoided. It's that scene that you see played out sometimes in movies and TV shows where somebody's, they're bleeding out. And you gotta stop the bleeding and so somebody takes a, a piece of metal and they stick it in fire. And they stick it on their flesh and they cauterize the wound. It's a painful experience, but it's an experience that saves their life. That's what Paul likens this letter to. But as we read on in verse 10, there's a dangerous counterfeit that we must avoid. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief, it leads to death. See what earnestness and godly grief has produced in you and he goes on to describe. We're going to come back to the subject of godly grief and worldly grief next week and examine our own experiences in our own life and what we should strive for. But let me give you a couple of implications to close with today. Number one, there is no greater point that I could make today than this. Our God comforts us in our afflictions. Verse 6, He comforts the downcast. This is what we see from cover to cover in the Scriptures. God coming to comfort His people. Tori shared just his testimony, the revelation of God seeing him. And that's one of the stories I, I have written down here. When, when Hagar was cast out of the, the camp of Abraham and Sarah. Sarah became jealous and, and Hagar is sent packing into the wilderness to die. Who comes to comfort her? God. Yahweh comes to comfort her. And what does she say? She says, you are the God who sees me. He sees us in our affliction. When Elijah was done, 
He had just exhausted himself, slain 950 prophets of Baal. And Jezebel says, you're going to be dead before the morning. And he takes off, and he heads south. And he gets there somewhere near Mount Horeb, Sinai. He says, I want it, I want it to end now, God. What does God do? He feeds him. He cares for him. He comforts him. He restores him back. I think of the ministry of Jesus. Who did Jesus spend his time with? For the most part, it was the downcast, wasn't it? When God put on flesh and came to dwell and came to, to live on this earth for the limited time he was here, who did he spend his time with? The majority of it was with the downcast. Why? Because he came to comfort them. He spent his time with lepers. That's his first miracle. I always, always love that his first miracle is walking up to everybody, the, the, the guy who everybody veered away from, the guy that everybody avoided because he had leprosy. And what does Jesus do? He touches him. And he brings healing. He spent his time with the tax collectors, the sinners, the downcast. He brings comfort. Are you grieved today? Are you fearful today? Are you guilty today? Are you maybe just numb today? He brings forgiveness and reconciliation and grace and mercy. To those who need forgiven today. Are you guilty? There's forgiveness in Jesus. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Are you grieved today? He brings comfort to the grieved. Cast your burden on Him and He will care for you. Are you fearful today? He will give you faith. He will help you to increase it so that you can face whatever it is that you're facing. Look with me, if you would, at Psalm 91. It's the psalm that was, again, brought to my attention this week. And Truth be told, it was a psalm that somebody here shared with Melanie earlier this week. Psalm 91, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Oh my friends, that is a big shadow. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terrors of the night nor the arrow that flies by day. 
nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made him, made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and on the otter, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him, I will protect him. Because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. I'm reminded as we read this, some of you may recognize verses 11 and 12. When Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted, Satan took him to the highest point of the temple said, jump off and let the angels protect you. And he quoted from Psalm 91. Jesus' response was with truth of Scripture as well. But the point I want to make in making the connection to Jesus is this. If you ever doubt His care for you, if you ever doubt that He is concerned with you, you you need only go one place to the cross of Christ. What more does he need to do to show you his care and concern? He came. He was tempted. He was tried in every way like we are, yet without sin. He lived the life we couldn't live. And he died that death on the cross that I don't want to die. And that you don't want to die. Experiencing the hell that our sin had incurred you can trust him Ephesians 2 says that we're dead in our sin it describes our depravity very well in Ephesians 2 and then it says those same words that we find in our text but God who is rich in mercy for the great love with which he has loved us he makes us alive together with Christ he loves you one of the means that God often uses to comfort us and to reveal his love to us in our weariness is friends we need to thank God for friends we need to thank God for the friends that he's placed in our lives and strive to be the kind of friend who is present in the suffering of others. Sure, Titus had words of encouragement when he showed up, but, but the words of encouragement, it seems by the way Paul lays this out, that was just the icing on the cake. He was initially and mostly encouraged by Titus, his friend. Be present for your friends. Be, be present for your church family. Be involved. Be engaged. 
in their lives. But also bring encouraging words that remind one another of the goodness, the power, the love, the grace, the mercy, the forgiveness of our God. In other words, talk to your friends about Jesus. Share truth with your friends from the Word of God. One final point. There is purpose in your grief. Paul didn't like his grief any more than we don't like our grief. But there's purpose in it. God uses grief. He uses the pain to do what? To lead us to repentance. To lead us back to Christ. To bring us into greater realities of who He is. I've heard it said this way many times. Our God does not waste trials. He has a purpose in each one of them. And so, so in the trial, don't, don't get bitter. Get better. Grow. Be faithful in following Him. I can't promise you that you'll always see the purpose in your grief. Sometimes you won't. Sometimes you will. But it comes down to this. Who is our God? He's a God who comforts. He's a God who loves. And I'll gladly plant my flag of faith on those truths and fly it during the seasons of difficulty and the seasons of strife. I'm going to ask you to bow with me if you would this morning. I know that some here today are suffering. You're waiting. You're in a difficult season. How's your soul? How's your faith? God comforts the downcast. Don't turn from Him. Turn to Him. I'm not always a good friend. I'm certainly not always a good pastor. But I am convicted as I consider these truths. I want to be a better friend. I want to be a better pastor. I want to be more present and involved in the lives of others. I want to be like Jesus and go to the downcast and comfort them. Maybe that's you today as well. Maybe you're here today and your grief is your sin and you need forgiven and you need a savior if that's you today I want to invite you to come and have your questions answered let us show you from God's word that you can be relieved you can find relief from those grievous burdensome weighty sins in your life there's forgiveness in Jesus
If any of you need to pray about anything, I want to invite you to the room just to my right, the prayer room. We would love to have somebody pray with you this morning. But I want to be quiet now and give you an opportunity to do whatever business you need to do with it.